There you go. Oh, that's better. Now stand all Barry White. Much nicer. Um, so we're going to look at the, 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 the phrases, the words that Jesus spoke while on the cross. And we're going to take a, a phrase each week out of those uh, 16 words uh, that Jesus spoke uh, while hanging on the cross. And they're, they're amazingly significant and uh, they hold real, there's real treasure in them. And as a team, I think, I think we're going we're to really enjoy preaching these because they're just really succinct and small, which is probably good for you guys. <laughs> and they're just packed with so much wonderful stuff. But I'm going to start just by reading uh, uh, some famous last words of some other people. I got this book. Funnily, I was, I was uh, searching around my house yesterday and just come across this book, which is called Famous Last Words. And it's the famous last words of uh, various dead people. Well, <laughs> while they were still alive. So let me read you one. Uh, this is uh, uh, the famous last words of um, Cherokee Bill, uh, who was an American outlaw who was hanged in 1896. And he, he got there and he said, uh, the quicker this thing's over, the better. <laughs> and then asked if he had anything to say. He said, no, I came here to die, not make a speech. It's <laughs> classic. Here's another one, a guy called William Palmer. Uh, I think it was a, a murderer. He was hanged in 1856. And stepping onto the gallows, he said, are you sure it's safe? <laughs> Gotta love that. And this, this, is, this is so funny. Here's a guy called Jack, Jack Myton. He was a, a British eccentric who died in 1834. It says here that <laughs> he died after he set his shirt on fire in order to banish hiccups. <laughs> Although he, was duly bur- although he duly burnt himself to death, he was able to remark, well, the hiccups have gone. <laughs> and then lastly, a guy called Ramon Maria Noves. Is a, what? <laughs> and uh, he, this, this was a, a Spanish patriot who died in 1868. And he said to his confessor, I do not have to forgive my enemies because I killed them all. <laughs> I do not have to forgive my enemies because I killed them all. And that brings us on to our, uh, the first statement that Jesus made while he was hanging on a cross. And I'm going to um, read from Luke. Uh, the scriptures, the actual quote that Jesus uh, said is going to come up on the screen, but there's be some scriptures read around it. So if you just want to listen to these. As they led Jesus away, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country just then, was forced to follow Jesus uh, and carry his cross. Great crowds trailed along behind, including many grief-stricken women. But Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For the days are coming when they will say, fortunate indeed are the women who are childless and the wombs who have not borne a child and the breasts that have never nursed. People will beg the mountains to fall on them and the hills to bury them. For if these things are done while the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. Finally, they came to a place called the Skull. All three were crucified there. Jesus on the centre cross and the two criminals either side. Jesus said, Father, forgive these people. Because they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive these people. Because they don't know what they're doing. 
So to many of us, this is a familiar story. We have visited here before. We might know the scripture and we might have an image of it in our mind, but maybe not everyone is, is there. So I want to just talk a little bit about how did we get here? What led us up to this uh, portion of scripture we just read? So I'm going to give you my quick kind of life of Jesus up to this moment kind of recap. So Jesus is, is born. And many of you will, will, will be uh, used to the story, the, the, the nativity narrative that you kind of follow at Christmas. So Jesus is born as a little baby. And the scriptures tell us that this is no ordinary baby. This is God become a man. God uh, among us, as one gospel writer says. That God took on uh, the flesh of man, the body. As my friend said, he became God in a bod. And he lived among us. And then scripture tells us that Jesus begins to grow. And we get little snapshots of Jesus. We get him at 12 in the temple. And he's, he's arguing and debating with the religious leaders and his parents who have lost him. Come and find him and say, what are you doing? And he's like, don't, didn't you know I'd, I'd be about my father's business? And I imagine they went, don't you know I'm your mum? That's not included in the gospels. This wouldn't look good for Jesus. But I'm sure it happened. And then he lives his life and we're told that he grew in the eyes of men and he grew in the eyes of God. That people respected him and he became well, well liked and well loved. And then scripture actually tells us something that's maybe a little bit harder to swallow. Maybe for you. It says that Jesus lived his life and did nothing wrong. Nothing wrong. Think about that. Jesus was around the age of 33, 33 and a half, something like that, when he died. So for 33 years, he did nothing wrong. He did no sin, the Bible tells us. Now, I've been up so far for about four hours today. <laughs> and I've covered a few already. Okay, how about you? I'm, I'm doing well, keeping my average up. But Jesus, the Bible says, that actually he lives this life that is sinless, it's guiltless, it's pure. Scary thing to think about. And Jesus travels around and he begins to teach about God. He spends 30 years doing it in his normal relationships and just hanging out and, and living a fairly kind of a, not a secret life, but just a, quite a personal life in the community where he lived. But then... Around the age of 30, he begins to travel and preach and becomes uh, more of a public kind of persona. That He begins to be recognized and whole towns come out to listen to Jesus. I don't know if your image of Jesus is, is one of a kind of a strange guy in a robe and 20 people standing around him. But that's simply not true. When you read the scriptures, it says that at certain times he was so popular that he wouldn't go into towns. Towns would come out to him. He was amazingly, amazingly popular. Had a massive following at different times in his life. And part of the reason for that was that Jesus loved people deeply. He loved people deeply. That he showed kindness and care and compassion and grace to the people in his society who were cut off and who were considered nothing. These were people that it was completely alright to just curse and not bother with. You had complete permission in a society that Jesus lived in, just to ignore certain groups. But Jesus didn't. Jesus sought them out. Jesus would lift them up uh, as examples of the kind of people that God had come for, 
that he had come for. Jesus performs loads of miracles. People receive their sight. People receive their hearing. People uh, who cannot walk get the ability to walk. People who have uh, major diseases, who have uh, skin diseases and bleeding issues and uh, all stuff, they get healed. Even the dead are raised. Even people who just die are raised by Jesus. But Jesus was loved, but Jesus was also hated. As much as there was crowds that would come and see him, there were individuals and groups who hated Jesus. Because Jesus would rock the boat in his day by the way he would live and the things he would do and the kind of people that he called or allowed to follow him. It didn't fit the status quo of the day. And there were these various religious groups that actually had all the power in the communities where Jesus was preaching and teaching and healing. And these groups began to be a little bit worried about Jesus because so many people were following him. So many people were listening to him and a lot of what he said was against them and the stuff that they had, the power that they had. So this leads us to a place where Jesus is arrested. He's arrested. And then he's tortured. He's tortured. And he's not arrested for something he did because the Bible tells us he did nothing wrong. And if you read the account, they even have to, they have to stump up charges. They have to get, pay false witnesses to come and testify against Jesus. He did this, he did that, just to get a charge on him. And the actual court he was in anyway that was trying him was a complete mock court. It was illegal under the laws of Rome. It was illegal under, under the laws of, uh, of the Jewish nation. It was just wrong in every way. But they so hated Jesus' group. That they just wanted rid of him. So they, he gets arrested. He gets tried by this mock court. False witnesses say he did this and he did that. And then they condemn him. And Jesus is tortured. I don't know what image you have of Jesus on the cross. Just kind of nice and a little kind of Superman curl there. And a little bit of sweat and some blood. But if you've seen the, the passion. The Mel Gibson's passion. You'll know actually that the real thing was a lot worse. And that film didn't really show everything Jesus was mocked they would put a crown of thorns on his head and these were called Jerusalem thorns and they were about six inches long and they made this crown they put on his head and they would hit him repeatedly on the head driving those into his skull they would spit at him they blindfolded him and they would punch him and say who hit you prophesy tell us come on you're the prophet tell us and then finally after Unfair arrest and unjust judgment on him. And after torture and mockery and being stripped naked, he is forced to carry his own cross, which actually he fails to do because he's been beaten so bad and his back is so open and raw. And eventually they take him to this hill, place of the skull, Golgotha, and he's crucified. He's crucified. They take long, rugged nails. Not these smooth ones you get at, like, home base. But rugged nails. And they whack them into his hands and his feet. And then he's thrown up on the cross. And he's thrown up in between these two criminals. Thieves, we're told, in, a, in another gospel. 
And the interesting thing that I've, I've learned, because I, I, I look at this story a lot, being a, a pastor, but especially at Easter, I always like, in a few weeks or months up to Easter, I like to do a, a restudy of the cross. And the thing that's really hit me this year about the crucifixion is just that Jesus never loses control. Now, you might think, hold on. What do you mean? He's been arrested. He's been thrown kind of in a prison and stuff. And he's been tried. And he's been beaten and he's been crucified. What do you mean? He sounds like he's out of control. But actually, when you look at it, Jesus never loses control. See, Jesus had thousands of people who were his followers. They were ready to make him king. Jesus also had a father in heaven who had his back, who had protected him before, and who you actually get a sense where sometimes Jesus makes a statement to say almost that he could. If I wanted to, I could get my father to sweep in and sort everything out. But there's never a moment during the the, the trial and the torture and the crucifixion and the moments of his death where he loses control, where he just his emotions just take over. You see, Jesus never fought back. Jesus never uttered a curse or a bad word at the people who were torturing him against the people who were crucifying him. And it was known that there there were a few ways you could do it. Crucified people would spit at the people crucifying. They would spit at the crowds. Also, that you know, because they were naked, the other weapon they had, they would urinate on the crowds. This is kind of what they do. There was often just a a bitterness and a rage that would come out of those who were crucified. You know, as you'd understand, that's not a good day. But Jesus doesn't show that. Jesus pretty much, through the ordeal, remains silent. He doesn't shout for his rights. He doesn't say, you can't do this to me. I've got thousands of people in my team. I'm God, you can't do this to me. He remains silent and there are a few statements he makes up to this point. But actually, through most of the torture, through the crucifixion, there's a silence. Until this moment. Until this moment we got right here where he is stood up on his cross in between these two thieves. And the crowd is mocking and the Romans are are down at the foot of his cross. And they're all kind of casting lots for who gets to keep his clothes. And he's... There and he's beaten and he's ridiculed and humiliated. And he says this, Father, forgive these people because they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive these people because they don't know what they're doing. I don't know what words come out of you when bad things happen to you. I don't know when, when you're pressured and when life puts its foot on you. I don't know what stuff comes out. But I'm guessing it's not always, Father, forgive these people. But here's Jesus. And we're going to look at just three things that come out of this. Don't ask me why preachers always do three things. It just, it just happens. I've tried to do four things. I can't do it. I've tried to do two. I can't do it. Just three. Three things that this moment paints for us first thing jesus fulfilled prophecy in this moment that actually 700 years before this moment on a hill a prophet a guy called isaiah spoke about this moment 
and uh, talked about a suffering servant. And he said this in Isaiah 53 verse 12. And he's speaking, I guess, on, on the behalf of God here. He's saying, I will give him the honors of one who is mighty and great because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among those who were sinners. He bore the sins of many and interceded for sinners. He bore the sins of many and interceded for sinners. That word there, interceded, intercession, it, it, it is essentially prayer. It's a crying out to God. So here's this guy, Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus is even born. And he says there'll be a moment when God will suffer for us. This servant will suffer on our behalf. He will carry our sins and he will pray. He will cry out to God on behalf of the people, of the sinner. And here we have Jesus on the cross, now there. So much hatred targeted at him, right at him. And what does he do? He prays. He prays. He intercedes. He says, Father, forgive these people. They don't know what they're doing. Second thing, Jesus, and it kind of linked to the first, I guess, Jesus showed us the importance of praying. Jesus showed us the importance of praying. Jesus did this all the way through his life. There was a moment right at the beginning of his ministry where he, he read scripture and, uh, and then said, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's almost like in that moment, like Jesus is beginning his ministry with a statement, almost with a prayer. And here's Jesus right near the end. And again, he's praying. Again, he's crying out. Jesus showed us the importance of prayer. And who did he pray for in this moment? He didn't actually pray just for the thousands of people who had come out. He didn't pray for his 12 disciples. He didn't pray for Mary. He prayed for his enemies. He prayed for his enemies. Looking out on these people who had done this to him. Looking out at the chief priests and the people who had made that mock trial happen. Who had condemned him and got him to this point. Looking at the Romans who had held the hammer. He looks at them and he says, Father, forgive these people. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus can't move anymore. He can't lift a hand to heal someone. He's pinned. There's no running for cover. There's no escape. So what does he do? He prays. He does what he knows to do. He prays. Thirdly, and this is where we're going to camp out for a while. Jesus reveals man's deepest need. Jesus reveals man's deepest need. Now to many of you, the moment you think of the cross, you'll get, you, you, it will bring up images of salvation and forgiveness. And that's right. Because this moment is about the forgiveness of sin. This moment on the cross, this prayer, and all the things that come after us for the next few weeks you'll be hearing. It's about the forgiveness of sin. It's about God coming in and dealing with the thing that disconnects us from God. One little kind of side thing that's interesting to me is the phrasing that Jesus uses when he says, excuse me, Father, forgive these people because they don't know what they're doing. Interesting thing that because Jesus is essentially saying that ignorance is not 
innocence. Ignorance is not innocence. He's saying, these people don't know what they're doing, but Father, you need to forgive them. Now, I don't know about you, I, I talk to people in, you know, and you, you get chatting and you might get onto the, the issue of you go to church and you might even go a bit further and the people you know well, you might get into conversations about the deeper things and talk about sin and you might come across someone who says, well, that might be sin for you, but it's, it's not sin for me. You might believe that and you understand that and that's your thing, but I don't see it that way. And you get the sense that people are like, they, they don't accept your, your ruler for how long something is or how short something is. And it's a sense where actually, just because they maybe don't believe it, just because they don't follow it that way, they think that they will not be subject to kind of the way it's measured. But here's Jesus in this statement, just sort of saying, Father, they don't know, but you, can, you need to forgive them. Ignorance is not innocence. So we're going to move on to a couple of things, talk about forgiveness. This is so important. First thing, we need to be forgiven. We all need to be forgiven. They say that a lot of counselling, when you get down to it, um, at, at the bottom of lots of people's issues is this sense of shame or a need for forgiveness. Deep down, all, all, the, all the different issues that come up and, 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 and affect their lives. At the root of it, there is this need for forgiveness, for someone to say, it's okay. I forgive you. I forgive you. The Bible says that each one of us has gone astray and we've gone our own way. That we have essentially lost our direction, the direction that God would set us. And I've talked about this before, but the way that really helps me understand what sin is. Because we've probably each got our own slight differences in measurement. But one of the words for sin, its root word is kind of a term for archery. Okay, So in archery, when you're you're taking a bow and arrow and you aim for a target. So let's say you're aiming for the bullseye. You shoot your arrow. um, And if you hit the bullseye you've hit your chosen mark right so you've you've done well you've completed the task it's okay but if you miss the bullseye if you miss it by an inch or if you miss it and you hit someone next to you firing a bow and arrow doesn't matter an inch it matters to that guy an inch or a mile if you miss the mark that's chosen for you to hit you sin you sin and I find that such an interesting way to look at it because then actually it makes sense to me because I sometimes look at other people think I'm not as bad as them. A lot of times I think about other people, I think, oh man, I'm bad, than, I'm so much worse than them. But when I think about sin and when I understand it in, that, in those terms, that actually sin is not about how good you are and the great stuff you've done, about what have you missed? What was the point of your life? What was supposed to be the thing that you were about? Because if you've hit that, then you're sinless. And if you haven't, then you've sinned. You've missed it. And Jesus lived a life where he never sinned. He never missed the point of his life. From day one, Jesus was obedient to God and would follow God in anything and talk to anyone and go anywhere. But you and I, you know, we're not always like that. I mean, do you ever have a day where you just feel like you're missing the mark? Do you ever, I had a day the other day, you know when you sort of get up and you feel like you're kind of five minutes behind yourself, 
all day. And every word you say to someone, you put the wrong emphasis on it and they cry. You know that? I do this all the time. Sometimes I just, I just, I get up in the morning and about an hour in, I just want to go back to bed and start again. Has anyone else had a day like that? A day when you just, for some reason, you realize I'm just missing every mark I'm supposed to hit. I'm supposed to love my wife, but I'm moaning at her. I'm supposed to spend time with my kids, but I'm watching TV. I'm supposed to get the car this. I've missed that and I've done that and money this. And you just, you just realize I'm just a shambles. I'm just a wreck. And part of what's happening there is you're just embracing the fact that you've sinned. That actually there's a brokenness about you. Sin disconnects us from things. It disconnects us from the right way to live. It disconnects us from each other. But most importantly, sin has disconnected us from God. You see, God is supposed to be the source of our lives. He is supposed to be the, uh, the root of everything we do. But what's happened with sin is we're born and we live for a long time and that's not our source. God is not our source. And we live from different places and we live uh, from different foundations of what we're about and what we must do and what the chosen mark is. And we're disconnected from God and we choose things that God would not choose for us. I don't know how aware you are of your sinfulness, but I'm often aware of it. Just as the, of the way I mess up and damage things. But also I'm aware of uh, the people around me and how they affect me. We all need to be forgiven. And in this moment here, Jesus does not single out one group as deserving and not deserving. But he says, Father, forgive these people. Because they don't know what they're doing. Jesus looks out on the whole crowd, the family and the friends and the enemies and those who hate him. And he says, Father, forgive them. Jesus here reveals our greatest need, which is that there's a brokenness about us. And it needs addressing, it needs fixing. It needs fixing. Secondly, we need to forgive. We need to forgive. I don't know about you, I was, uh, I'm mo- we're moving house next week. We're going to live in Wellington City, my wife and I, which is awesome. And uh, yesterday we began to pack boxes. Who enjoys packing a whole house? I love it. You start off with loads of energy, don't you? You're like, yeah, let's do it. Ten minutes later, come on, a cup of tea. <laughs> anyway, I... Uh, the thing about packing is I, I lie to myself when I'm packing. I just constantly like I look and I go, yeah, that's one box. <laughs> you do this? And you get like five boxes in <laughs> and you haven't made a dent. And you suddenly realise, man, we picked up some rubbish. And you lie to yourself that uh, when, uh, it'll be good to pack because we can get rid of some of the rubbish. You can't. And I found also a little thing. When you're packing, avoid photo albums. Avoid them. I must have given up two hours of packing time yesterday when I found a photo. (gasps) Zoe! Come and look at this! Oh, weren't we young? Weren't we thin? 
I didn't realize how much stuff I'd collected, just rubbish. And we're currently around 17 boxes in and about a room down, <laughs> which is good. We've only got a two-bed house. It's good. But that was a small room. And I just realized how much baggage I've got. How much baggage I've got. And what about you? You can sit there and you can probably list a bunch of stuff that people have done to you. If I ask you to do two lists, a list of the things, the horrible things that people have done to you in your life, and another list, the horrible things that you have done, I've got a feeling one list would be longer than the other. I think the list of things that have been done to you would be huge. And I think the list of things that you have done that you might need to seek forgiveness from that person, you might need to actually forgive some stuff. I think that would be longer. See, Jesus lived in a, in a culture of revenge. I don't know if you knew this. Jesus' culture was one of revenge. There were the Romans, and the Romans were known for revenge like, oh man. If you mess with Roman citizens, you get it. You know, if, you, if there was a slave uprising, man, they'd get it. They would just, just cover whole roads from one place to another with crucified people. They would know revenge. It was accepted that if you messed with Rome, we get you. And then there's the other side. You've got Jesus, uh, the Jewish culture, which if you know, if you know anything about that, you know, you, you've probably heard this phrase, uh, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You heard this? There was actually, there was kind of a, a permission there for actually, if someone does you wrong, you do it back. They take an eye, you take an eye. They take a tooth, you take a tooth. So Jesus is in the middle of this kind of revenge culture. But let's just, I'm just going to take you to Luke 6 and help you to just understand how Jesus is going against this. He says this in, in Luke 6. But if you're willing to listen, I say love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for the happiness of those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. Now let me just read that to you again. If you're willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for the happiness of those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. Now, when he says pray for those who hurt you, he's not saying pray, God, get them. (laughs) God, that person who cut me up, make their car melt. Lord, that person in front of me with 12 items, get them. Let all that food turn to snakes. He's not saying that. He's saying, actually, he's saying something that is amazing in his day and is amazing in our day. I mean, this just, just that statement, pray for those who hurt you. Is that your first reaction? When someone hurts you, pray for them? I've got to tell you, a lot of times it's not my last reaction It doesn't come into it. It's not in the equation. But here's Jesus talking quite early on in his public ministry. Saying this stuff. And the crowds were probably just like, wow, weird. Pray for your enemies. Love your enemies. 
But then here's Jesus. Uh, you carry on from Luke and you go to Luke 23 where we've been and he's on the cross. And he's been mistreated and he's been hurt by his enemies. He's looking down death right in the face and he says, Father, forgive these people. Because they don't know what they're doing. Forgive these people. Don't know what they're doing. So we do need to be forgiven. We need to seek God and his forgiveness. But also you and I, we need to learn to forgive others. And this is so key to walking with God. So absolutely central to your relationship with Jesus that you learn to forgive others. That you and I begin the journey towards when people hurt us, we pray for them. That we seek the happiness of our enemies. This is almost ridiculous. But it's how Jesus lived. It's not what he taught, it's what he did. And the cross is two things to me. For someone approaching the cross... Not knowing God, but longing to know God and longing to be forgiven. The cross offers grace and forgiveness and life. But for those of us who have accepted Jesus, for those of us who know him, the cross demands of you grace. It demands of you forgiveness. Your enemies. Pursue the good of those who hurt you. Now, I don't know about you, that's a tall order. But there's no getting away from it. Jesus is completely strong on this. In the Gospels, he talks about forgiveness and he talks about the fact that you and I, we must learn to forgive one another because if we do not forgive our brothers and sisters on earth, the people around us, Our Father will not forgive us. He links directly your relationship with God to your relationship with everyone else. We need to forgive. I'm just going to end by reading another scripture. And this was later on was a a church pastor writing to a church. And they'd had a a good few years to mull over the life of Jesus and how they should live. And he's counseling this church and he says this. You must make allowance for each other's faults and forgive the person who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Can I have the band back up? Would you guys mind standing up? So as we come to the cross this Easter, the first thing we need to see is that that's God on the cross there. And that what he's doing enables you to be forgiven by your father, to actually have a relationship with God again. But also it it asks something of you, demands something of you. 
that if you know that Jesus of the cross, you need to forgive others. And some of you today, you might have stuff, you might right now just be able to think there's a relationship that's wrong in my life. Maybe something you've done to someone, maybe some, something someone's done to you. But I just want to urge you, just go and sort it out. Just go and have that conversation, write that email, make that phone call. Do what you need to do. Let's worship.